0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, and this is the Bread of Life. It's a program of the International Discipleship Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism, and I invite you to go to cpeonline.org to learn more about our work in over 40 countries. To learn about our ministry in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Today we continue a consideration of the first words of John's Gospel. It's an account that undeniably confirms that Jesus Christ was God. An old English preacher gives the account of a woman in his church who told him once that she believed that Jesus was a good man and a great teacher who directed us to God and whose principles we should follow, but that he was not God himself. The preacher asked the woman which book in the New Testament she enjoyed the most. She told him the book of John. He had actually noticed that this was a book she had quoted often. He asked her to read it again with a pencil in hand and to cross out any verse that might indicate that Jesus was divine and note next to that that she didn't believe those words. She approvingly accepted his assignment, leaving to do her editing. A week later, she returned to him. "'How did you get along?' he asked her. "'I didn't get along well at all,' was her reply." The truth is that I found I had crossed out the whole first chapter of the book when I began reading it, and I began to think, what would become of this book and its promises that I've so loved? And I cried, and I prayed, Lord, as it is so, I accept thee as Son of God, my Lord and my God. Well, others may not capitulate so easily to such an assignment, but if anyone reads John's introduction they will not be able to deny that to John, Jesus was his Lord and his God. Well, as we noted last week, for the Jew or for the Greek of that day in which this letter of John was written, this account of the life of Jesus Christ was written, the language that John initially uses would have allowed for them to place their own ideas into the text in such a way that they would not have been unapproving of anything that was said in the content of the first 13 verses of John chapter 1. They would have read it and they would have identified it as something that was, in their minds, theologically, intellectually correct. They would be able to impose their notions of understanding about the Word, their notions of understanding about the nature of truth upon the text, and been very comfortable. The Jew could have read it and recognized that the word was used in the place of God, as it was in many of their readings. In the synagogues, they would have the scriptures read in Hebrew, and then the scriptures reread to them in Aramaic. And when they would read in the Aramaic, the scriptures, when they would come to the name of God, oftentimes they would replace that name with this phrase, the word of God. And so when they read about the Word of God, being with God and being God, it wouldn't bother them at all because, of course, they would understand it that way. The Greek, on the other side, understand the Word to be the principle of life and light and enlightenment and the dynamic sovereign force that determined the fates of men. And so they could read it and have no problem as well. It would square with their intellectual and moral perspective. They would read it and see that the word was a poetic way of speaking of God or of the universal mind or the reason that governs all life. They would read and they would concede that this word existed before all else and that this word was what shaped and gave shape to all creation. They would intellectually be satisfied that this word is the principle of life and the light of men and the basis upon which individuals come to intellectual and spiritual and moral enlightenment or come out of darkness into the light. They would agree that when men reject the principles of the Word or of wisdom or of truth, that regularly they reject it, and this is the course of humanity, that oftentimes truth or the Word comes to men and they receive it not. And yet, for those who do embrace it, they are made sons of the Word or sons of God. That wouldn't be a problem for them. They would read all of that and it would appeal to their sense of religious and intellectual enlightenment. The first 13 verses would not be a problem at all. Verse 14 then would be disturbing for them. When they came, and it says, and the word became flesh, and tabernacle dwelt among us. Now that was a shock. That did not square with their moral and spiritual and intellectual sensitivities. That would force them to go back and reread the text all over again. Try to find out if maybe somehow they were reading it wrong that it wasn't explaining itself as clearly as they were looking for and try to make sense of it all over again. What we take note in this again is this, that the Lord Jesus' most radical impact on individuals is that He threatens their comfortable ways of thinking, their personal ideologies, and their natural theologies with a bracing revelation of Himself. When Jesus reveals Himself, it shocks people because God comes before them in the flesh. He has invaded our world. He has invaded our space. And in the process, He has destroyed all of our religious pretenses. You want to begin to tear away the religious pretense in individuals? Talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Declare Him to them. Speak of Him often. Bring them into His presence. He will begin to systematically bring down and tear down all of their religious pretenses because he was real, because he wasn't just a theory, he wasn't just a theology, he wasn't just an idea, he was real, he was a real man in the flesh and yet he was real God. The fact is that people couldn't handle his reality and so they sought to destroy it and put it aside. But this is what Christ does. And so, those unbelieving Jews and those unbelieving Greeks, as they're reading that text at that time, and when they came upon verse 14, would be forced to go back to the beginning of that chapter and reread it. And maybe they would reread those first 13 verses to see if there could be an explanation that removed the shock of God coming in the flesh. Maybe they had read it wrong. Maybe they would missed something there. Maybe they had imposed some idea about this being the expression of the true God or an expression of the one who has shaped all of creation, or who guides all the fates of men. Instead, when they went back, they realized that, well, that part was still right there in the text. They found that, as they read it more carefully, what they were reading was a complete and unambiguous confession that Jesus was the Son of God and that Jesus was among us. It's very interesting, by the way, that John doesn't mention the Lord Jesus' name at the very beginning of his gospel. He saves it until you come to verse 18. John saves it in order to, in a sense, set an intellectual trap for these individuals. And John uses very careful, very careful and very technical terminology that would be completely compatible and consistent and understood by the Jew and Greek of his day in order that they'd read it and agree and agree and agree and agree and uh, see what it was that they were ultimately agreeing about. So let's go back to verse 1. And for our sake this morning, let's just go through and look at what they read again and see what ultimately John is speaking about and what they are confronted with. What they must discover. And the first thing we notice here is that as we look at it, we see that there is a new name given to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is called the Word. Jesus is called the Word. Now, words are the expressions of thought and nature. And this word that John speaks of is an expression of the thought of God and the nature of God so that we would know Him. As I mentioned to you last week, you can distinguish between a thought and you can distinguish between a word, that there's something distinguished about them, but you also recognize that they are inseparable, that you cannot have thoughts without word, and you cannot have word without thought. And the Lord Jesus comes as the expression of, the revelation of, the thought of God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, and four other times in the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus is found referring to himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Now, Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet, and it is as though the Lord Jesus is saying, I am the alphabet of God. I am the one who is the words and the letters by which you come to understand and know him. I am the words to the thought. I am the very expression of God. In John chapter 14, verse 8, you have that account, we referred to it last week, where Philip must have thought that he was acknowledging to the Lord Jesus that he had some great, powerful, spiritual ability to translate information, wonderful, truthful information to them all. I think he thought he was making a wonderful faith confession. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. Lord, he's saying you have the power to make God known to us and to show him to us and to execute this power. Why don't you execute it right now and open the heavens so that we can see him. Philip must have thought, what a declaration of faith. What a declaration of profound insight that I've made. I've been studying his life for all this time and I realize he is the one who can reveal God to us. Now, Lord, do it. You have it in your power. You've been holding something back. Reveal him to us. But the Lord Jesus doesn't praise Philip for this tremendous acknowledgement of power or this expression of faith. No, instead, the Lord Jesus says, Philip, you've come way short in your claims. Your faith has failed here. In verse 9, he says, Have you been with me so long and yet you don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? He is the Word that gives expression to the thought. He is the very expression of God. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, the Lord says this, No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What is he saying? You want to know God? You have to know him through me. I am the Word. I am the Word of God. That's the first thing we should notice a name that's given to the Lord Jesus. The next thing we ought to know is an eternity, a pre existence to this word is attributed as well. The verse says, In the beginning was the word. You see that? In the beginning was the word. And here we have a statement of pre existence. It's very similar to what's said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. But there's something different between these two verses. Because in Genesis 1.1, you were taken to the threshold of all creation, that point at which into eternity time broke forth, and you're brought to that point in time, that moment in which creation now is going to break before you, and you're looking from the threshold of eternity into history. And you're looking down through the history of all created order and everything that's been made that has been made. And you're saying, in the beginning, God made all that. And our eyes are being cast upon all that's been created. And that's our vantage point from this text. But now in John chapter 1, verse 1, you're brought to the same exact point in time when everything began. But now instead of facing all of creation, you're turned around to look the other direction. And now you're not looking at creation and what is made but what made it all and you're told in the beginning was the word and you're looking out into all eternity and pre-existence and by this word everything that was made was made by him and nothing that was made without him and there's your position you're looking into the eternity of god the word was what does it mean this means that there was never a time when God was without the Word, and the Word was without God. There was never a time in which Jesus was not. He just was. He just is. Thanks for joining us today for the Bread of Life. The Bread of Life is a listener-supported program of Church Partnership Evangelism. To help support this broadcast and the evangelism and disciple-making work of CPE in Asia, Europe, Africa, and South America, go to breadoflifeboise.org and follow the links in order to make your donation. Our radio messages are offered at the Mission Fellowship of Bread of Life, which meets in the Old White Church in the Warm Springs area of Boise. We gather for worship at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. We invite you to come and join us. Until our next time, may God bless you.